welcome back to 1A, a podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. 1A is designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. Reverend Squires is the pastor of counseling here at First Presbyterian Church, and I'm Josh Fleming, the pastoral intern for the college ministry. Today we're discussing the important doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture and how it applies to the world of counseling. If you have any comments or questions about our show, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can find our contact information on our website at firstpreszcolumbia.org or download the First Presbyterian Church app in the app store of your choice. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and to those around you. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome back to 1A. I'm your host, Josh Squires. And joining me again today, as last time, we've got the three Joshes and Mark. I've got <laughs> Josh Fleming over here to my left. Josh, thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here. I think we need to start a band, the three Joshes and Mark. That could be something, right? <laughs> I, am I wrong? I, I don't no. know. I think you're on to something. <laughs> okay. I think you're on to something. If this whole thing doesn't work out. Yeah, if the, if we, the, we've got a fallback plan now. I don't know what you want me to do. I can't play an instrument, nor can I sing. But uh, I can be you a can bang face. a drum. Yeah, we need more cowbell. You can take the cowbell. <laughs> there we go. Always need more cowbell. Of course, kind of in the muffled background, you hear Josh Adair, former intern and current minister of discipleship for First Hattiesburg. Josh, thanks good for to being be here. With. Yeah, thanks for being here, brother. I appreciate you uh, joining us. And of course, Mark Capper. Mark, thanks for being here as well. He's pastoral intern for biblical counseling. Hey, so glad to be here with you guys today. Okay, so last time we began to look at Scripture and the Westminster Confession, and we really touched on authority and how having Scripture as the authority in our lives gives us rest and it's something that we can run to, and how we use that in order to bring people peace. Now we want to move to sufficiency, and sufficiency is another one of the four core attributes of Scripture that we see in the Westminster Confession. So those four are authority, necessity, perspicuity, which is my favorite, (laughs) and sufficiency. Let's run through each of those real quickly before we begin to start talking about sufficiency. Authority, just like we talked about last time, that it has authority over our life. If it tells us that something is either right or wrong, if it gives us the shape and character of how we should enact our lives or a telos, the end to which our lives should exist, love of neighbor, love of God, it is right. There is no one or nothing else that can supersede that authority. Not even in nature itself can anything supersede the expressed written word of God. Mm -hmm. So it is authoritative. And then you have necessity. That is, you cannot get to God in a saving way without the written word of God. Mm -hmm. Though God declares his handiwork in the firmament and in the earth, and you can get to the fact that there is a creator without necessarily having to have scripture itself, you can't get to the story, which is God would send his very own son and that he would take on flesh and that he would die in order that you and I might be his. You could never get there outside of God's written word. And so if you want to be saved, it is necessary that you have God's written word, which is what compels missions for us to go out and to take God's word to people. And then perspicuity, which is the old word for clarity. And that just means that the Bible is sufficiently clear in what is needed for saving faith that anyone can have it. 
So it's not mm-hmm. that the Bible's sufficiently clear on all things. One just need read, you know, the Ezekiel wheels within the wheels scripture uh, uh, portion of scripture and recognize okay there are there are pieces of scripture that are not all that clear but that it's sufficiently clear in its core elements what we need in order that we might be saved uh, and that there are other pieces of scripture that are more clear and more clear elements of scripture interpret less clear elements of scripture and then lastly is sufficiency, and sufficiency is that Scripture is sufficient for all things that it says that it is sufficient for. Now, that's a, that's a bit of a <laughs> qualified definition, mm. and there's a reason that's a qualified definition, because sufficiency itself is a topic about which there's been much, much writing and hand-wringling as of late, mm-hmm. especially in the biblical counseling movement. Josh, have you seen yes. or read where this issue of sufficiency has been at issue in the biblical counseling movement? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was literally lead, reading a resource from one of the founders of the biblical counseling movement, Jay Adams, the other day. Yeah. And especially towards the end of his life, he was quoted as saying, Scripture is sufficient for life and godliness in all ways, so that if if you read and import anything from secular psycho, psychological theories into your biblical counsel, you are actually harming the person that wow. that is under your counsel because you are importing a godless worldview into their life. Wow. So... Mm. That's the context in which the sufficiency question <laughs> yeah, turns. This, and this is Turn. a big issue. You know, you can be alienated from entire groups on the biblical counseling side or even on the integrationist side. That those two groups of counselors, maybe I should give some definition there here in a second, based on how you define Scripture's sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Here, it, in that definition that you hear from Adam's, he has a very broad definition of sufficiency, that sufficiency of Scripture covers a large swath of material, that you cannot import anything from the outside counseling world or otherwise you are somehow undermining Scripture's sufficiency. And like you said, that you're importing something that can actually be detrimental or harmful for the person. Now, on the opposite yep. side, so, so that's that's the biblical counseling side. That's that's where the biblical counseling field comes from. So Jay Adams, for people who don't know, is one of the founding fathers, as you said, Adair, of the biblical counseling movement. On the opposite side, you're going to have integrationists, and integrationists are going to have a very narrow view of sufficiency, and they're going to say that sufficiency is, that, that Scripture is sufficient for life and godliness, for faith and how to live, but it, it really only regulates saving faith and things that would be uh, moral issues, you know, whether or not you could leave your wife, for example, because you fell in love with your secretary. They would be like, absolutely not. The, the scripture is clear and sufficient to tell you that that is not okay. But then also things about religion and dogma, how it is that we express our religion, it would be sufficient for that. But things like how it is that you help someone out of anger or how it is that you help a couple as they try mm-hmm. to appreciate one another, well, Scripture's not quite sufficient for that. So they're going to have a narrower view of sufficiency. 
than something like a biblical counseling view. That's fascinating. Can I <clears throat> just ask a quick question? It sure. seems like on that, that first definition from the um, sort of broad biblical counseling view, is he saying you will necessarily be doing harm? Is, is, it, is it you may be doing some harm by bringing in these outside things? Or is it like, no, look, if you, if you do that, if you bring any of those things from you know, secular, popular, whatever it is, counseling methods into the, into the pastor's office, you are actually doing harm. Is it, maybe I misunderstood the first definition, but what, what is his view on that? Possible? He would, he would say, from, from the, from the uh, interaction I've had with him, he would say, you are importing more of, uh, quote, secular categories into gotcha. our anthropology, our doctrine of man, than you are importing what are ultimately redemptive and biblical categories that would align more with Scripture. And he, he takes such a broad view of sufficiency to say, like, there's there's nothing outside of Scripture and what it defines in our anthropology as, you know, healthy human flourishing that, and Josh, you can clarify this because you're familiar with them too, there's nothing outside of Scripture's anthropology or doctrine of man or man's functioning that is not sufficient for all of the reality of our troubles and our pains so that scripture can actually be sufficient totally to counsel someone in the room. And you don't need to depend upon those mm. secular insights because of their, their, what we, what we call, uh, apologetically their presuppositions, their, their basic beliefs about man, which will ultimately in Dr. Adams view, lead them away from a biblical worldview. Yeah. And I think we need to affirm that a lot of counseling techniques and counseling philosophies, the last I checked, there's something like 240 different psychological mm-hmm. schools. A lot of those are just sub-discipline of the broader schools, mm. if it's cognitive sure. behavioral or emotion-focused or family systems or whatever it is. Mm. But um, almost all of them, and and maybe all of them, I'd say almost only because I haven't looked at all 240 <laughs> or more, come from a secular world and life view. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think the caution that Jay Adams raises is a good caution. I don't know that the conclusion he reaches is a justified conclusion, though. And, and we'll circle back around to that. And Jay Adams is always more black and white. So it's interesting. I've been told that when you meet him in person, he's in glory now. Uh, praise the Lord. He's with his Savior. He's done a lot of good for a lot of people. And he mm. ha- now has his crown of glory. That's amazing. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. But, praise the Lord. Yeah. I, I hear that in person, he was much more relational than he was in his writing, where he was much more black and white, mm. much more polemic. Mm-hmm. And so he tends to take pretty hard stances. Keith Lambert, who has taken the reins or did for a while, I think I think maybe he stepped back a little bit now that he's the pastor of a church, I think in Jacksonville, at ACBC, which is the organization that, that kind of came out of Jay Adams' original founding. He has a very similar view, but, but language is it a bit different, maybe a bit softer, which is to say that the narrative, it comes from a narrative philosophy, that the narrative that we have in Scripture is so superior that there's no reason to buy in or use the narrative that some of these secular resources would give you. Mm. Um, it's, it's just choosing a cheaper generic form when you have the Cadillac in front of you. Mm. And so why, why mm-hmm. would you drive the Yugo when you've got the Cadillac would mm. be kind of his, mm-hmm. his analogy, which, which I think is a good analogy, but I also <laughs> think is actually not correct in certain places. And again, Maybe we'll talk about that here in a second. Maybe as an analogy, it's a bit of an oversimplification of what the actual 
I guess it's situation. That's is, right. Yeah, that's right. I think I think it is an oversimplification of what sufficiency means, and the ability of Scripture to be sufficient for all counseling issues across all time. That doesn't mean that that Scripture isn't sufficient. Like there's any counseling issue where where Scripture has nothing to say, mm. but that it's completely sufficient for all counseling issues across all times. Mm. That's where I'm going to be a bit narrower in my sufficiency. Well, and it's interesting just to hear you talk about that, Josh, because I think if we are to look at the confession number six here in chapter one, about halfway down there in number six, it says, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. I think there's what's being communicated there is that there is a role for Christian wisdom mm-hmm. uh, where it's not expressly stated in Scripture wh- how you are to respond to whatever the situation is. And I think that can include counseling uh, circumstances where you are seeking to advise someone in their circumstances where, you know, it's going to be according to the light of nature and Christian prudence and maybe not expressly written in the scriptures. And and, and so I think the, the confession itself allows for more for Christian wisdom where I, th- I feel like where Adams is coming from there is saying like, no, it's scripture expressly says is all that we can use. And now granted that we don't therefore want to necessarily baptize all secular counseling and things like that but at the same time we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. i guess is what mm-hmm. i'm trying to say someone had their wheaties this morning this is exactly <laughs> the point that i was about to make <laughs> that if we were to prioritize scripture and say is it more interested in theology or anthropology not not that it's not interested in both or maybe that they're equal but it's certainly not more interested in anthropology than theology. Yeah. Mm. Right? So they're either equal or theology <laughs> supersedes anthropology. And what the confession does is says there's an area where you need to use some common light of nature wisdom in order to do this well. Mm. Right? So if scripture is sufficient for faith and how to live, but the, but the confession says there are elements here where you're going to have to use outside wisdom in order to make decisions. When do you worship? Where do you worship? If it's, you know, they wouldn't have had this language then, but as we do now, contemporary versus traditional. These are things that you're going to have to make a decision on. And if there's that room in the confession on that issue, certainly there's got to be room where in the anthropological, you've got light of nature ability. Mm. You've got what, what we would call common grace ability, that you would be mm-hmm. able to bring in common grace and import common grace. Now, I don't know why Jay Adams, and I don't know how he would respond to that. I don't know why Jay Adams, who was a professor at Westminster, would get to the point where he thinks sufficiency so covers counseling that, that doesn't allow for light of nature in, in this instance. But for the biblical counseling groups, ACBC and others, they're not Westminster Confession groups. Mm. So this argument carries a lot of weight for us four Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a really helpful distinction. Right, who, who happen to be going through the Westminster Confession and how the Westminster Confession can be used in counseling. Mm. 
but it doesn't have a lot of weight for Heath Lambert. Mm. Right? It doesn't have a, a lot of weight for Lelick or or some of these other big name Hambrick, other uh, biblical counseling guys because they're just not Westminster Confession guys. Mm. Now, maybe it has some weight. I don't know them individually. They may like the Westminster Confession, but they're certainly not a part of denominations that have it as part of their constitution. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's a really good point, point Mark, and was going to be my next point, but also that we need to be self-aware to know, hey, this carries a lot of weight for us, but this is going to be an empty point for some. Yeah, yeah. I also think that this is actually a really significant insight you just brought up, though, Josh, that it's for us, you reference common grace insight because in the realm of, of, of how people relate variously to scales of both the sufficiency of Scripture and the insight that our light of reason can provide for us, it's almost like on one side, and maybe you can confirm this in the integrationist realm that take a more narrow view of sufficiency, that they would say that it's almost like they view the the insight that you would pull from secular psychology as almost equivalent in terms of human functioning with what Scripture could offer because of their theological categories that they're bringing to it of maybe a one-to-one correlation between what, what they view as natural revelation versus special revelation yeah. versus if that's the dynamic that we're bringing, then I can actually really sympathize with what guys like Jay Adams would say, who is a confessional guy, and who would say, no, actually, special revelation is going to take priority over natural revelation every time. And he's pulling other theological categories into his perspective, and he's recognizing things like the doctrine of sin and how it affects our mind. He's, he's recognizing and giving the right weight, I think, of balance that Scripture does provide in its sufficiency to his framework for how he counsels. But the category that you brought up was common grace insight versus natural revelation. And I think that's really important because I heard a friend reference this in a conversation the other day that what we're saying and taking a, a little bit broader of a view of sufficiency than, say, our integrationist friends or our uh, a little bit more narrow view of sufficiency than our biblical counseling friends. Like, we're saying that really this is information that comes from the realm of God's common grace insight. It's still part of his redemptive understanding of how he's at work in the world while also recognizing that ultimately Scripture is going to be our, our plumb line for what writes that, because Scripture points us to the ultimate redemption that comes in Jesus. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense, what I just said. <laughs> no, 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 I, I think it does. And I would say that there is absolutely a recovery in Adam's of biblical priority. And, and that's that's what I genuinely appreciate about the biblical, and and it's the it's the yeah, Rubicon, if you will, that I crossed when I left my clinical practice and went back and got my MDiv, which is to say that if there's ever a place in which scripture and counseling theory seem to be in tension, scripture must win. Mm. That that goes back to the authority issue. Mm. Scripture must win, and on the integrationist side. Oftentimes, if there are enough psychological studies that promote X and it appears that that, that's what they would probably say is it appears as if Scripture is saying anti-X, we must reinterpret Scripture somehow. We must go back and look at what Scripture is saying and realize that it's maybe just contextual or that it's 
analogous or illustrative or there's something or it's, or it's a different genre. And of course, what they will use is the whole Galileo debate issue and say, hey, look, he, he proved that the scripture wasn't be ta- to be taken scientifically, even though scripture was being used improperly. That That whole thing, by the way, is a complete misunderstanding of the historical debate and what happened there. The church did not take a position until scientists asked the church to take a position, and then the church only took the position of the major science position, using a piece of scripture then to back what the majority of science was saying. In other words, the church chose to proof text in order to prop up the majority science opinion. Mm. It is not that the majority of science opinion was showing reverence to scripture, mm. right? So, so it's a, a complete misread of that particular historic issue. That aside, but that 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 is what people will point to and say, look, there are times when science tells us that our scriptural exegesis is wrong. And where I want to correct my integrationist brothers while appreciating a larger category for common grace is that good uh, historical grammatical exegesis always wins. Mm. It always wins. So if, for example, I don't, I don't think Philippians 4 is saying never, ever, ever, ever worry. I don't, and I think I can exegetically show you why it says that. But if, after you do your grammatico-historical research, you look at Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, and you think that that is an imperative, a command from Paul for all Christians across all times that they should never be anxious and all anxiety is sin, then you have to acknowledge that, right? You you can't make excuses for it. Scripture, scripture must win, and so that's that's the space where I am totally with Doctor Adams, and I really appreciate his recovery of scriptural authority. Yeah, and it really helps to remember the time frame in which he was writing too, uh, and in terms of a, a period of great unrest in our in our current society, a period of great growth in the fields of what we might call secular psychology, like these, these psychological theories that were coming out that were, that were actually pretty profound in some of the things that they were beginning to see. And what he saw, uh, a lot of his motivation in writing was what he saw was that the church was actually, was beginning to maybe buy too much into the idea that scripture does not actually speak to our condition that much. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to recover the idea of, no, Scripture actually speaks to our condition because at the heart of Scripture is a God who has made himself known. Like, he mm. wants us to be known mm. by him. He wants to know us, and he sent his Son to show us how we might live. He sent his Son to change us into the, to, to change us to live how we should. Yeah. And he, mm. he gives us his Spirit, and he's recovering in the church a, a spirit that looks at Scripture and says, What's, what Squires essentially just pointed out is that Scripture must win because Scripture is is that sense of true understanding of how we should live. And, and so, Scripture uh, is life. Scripture gives life in a way that no other resource can. Absolutely. Right. So, so, so it's not that I just use, sprinkle a little bit of Scripture here and there, but want to get to some therapeutic methodology. My therapeutic methodology helps me get to Scripture. Mm-hmm. Scripture is the place that I'm trying to land, not not my runway, so that I can take off and end up in some sort of therapeutic realm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I again, I appreciate Jay and his recovery. I, I do mm-hmm. think it's too far. And just to sure. give people, if they're not Westminster, like they're, they don't really care about the Westminster, but they are reformed. I, I want to read to you something that Calvin writes. Calvin writes this in his commentary on Titus when Paul quotes a philosopher that he calls a prophet, which is problematic in and of itself, <laughs> and says that all Cretans are liars, right? Now, obviously, not every single Cretan was a liar, and so he's he's using an absolute to make a point. But here's here's what Paul writes, or no, Paul, sorry, here's what Calvin writes about Paul when he says this. From this passage, we may infer that those persons are superstitious who do not venture to borrow anything from heathen authors. All truth is from God. Mm. And consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it, for it has come from God. Besides, all things are of God, and therefore, why should it not be lawful to dedicate to his glory everything that can properly be employed for such a purpose? Mm. Right? So that's that's not the mm. Westminster. That, that's Calvin. That's one of the chief reformers. So if you're a reformed believer and and you're taking a position, a presuppositional position, which says the presuppositions of counseling are too humanistic to be used, you can take that if you want to. That's, a, that's an epistemological commitment that you can make. But you have to understand you're the progressive. You're the yeah. new one here. You haven't been around as long as the reformers and a traditional natural theology epistemology. Mm-hmm. And you've been around for less than 100 years, so we've not gotten to see all the ways in which that epistemology works itself out yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you even see this in the in the book of Proverbs when they've got the sayings of Agur, uh, I think I'm saying that right, which are oracles of Luke, uh, from a, a, essentially a pagan king. <laughs> Josh, can you remind us as, which uh, which huh? chapter of Proverbs does that come from? Proverbs thirty. Proverbs right. thirty. The, the sayings of Agur, son of I think Jackie, <laughs> are are recorded in Scripture, and that is part of the canon of Scripture that we right. receive as sufficient for actually speaking to us. You look at similarly in Proverbs, the words of King Lemuel, another pagan king, oracles that were that were sort of looked at from the author of Proverbs, and they were saying, no, this is actually divine, and it's truth. Yeah. You even see Paul in the Areopagus on, in the New Testament in Acts 17, affirming those very things of what they have made known in their religion as reaching out to an unknown God. And yet he brings the truth of Scripture to fully bear upon them so that they might know the God as he had made himself known in Christ. Let me put all my cards on the table here. Let me just help. God bless you if you made it through this entire podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I think I dozed off for a minute. Right, yeah. I'm back. Here we go. I'm pretty sure it's just my wife listening right now. (laughs) And that's totally fine. Thanks, Melanie, for listening. But, But let me maybe put some hooks out there for where I am and why I navigate the way that I do that might help people think through. When we talk about sufficiency, oftentimes what we're talking about is at least two different kinds of sufficiency. We're talking about formal sufficiency and material sufficiency. So by formal 
sufficiency. What we mean is, is that Scripture gives you the data you need for the form. It gives you all the structure you need. It may not tell you particularly, do this maneuver, take this particular job, right? That would be a place where it is formally sufficient. It can't tell you which job to take, but it can give you all the principles you need in order to weigh if you should take this job or you should remain where you are. Material sufficiency is if it gives you everything you need for a particular end. So it is materially sufficient for how it is that you are saved before a just God. It's also materially sufficient morally, as we were talking about earlier, when it's about what you can do and what you can't do. It's also materially sufficient on shaping your heart, making your character look more and more like Christ. Now, sometimes, because that is true, people then import material sufficiency there to include the entirety of counseling. And what I would say is that the the counseling endeavor is one of those odd endeavors, and this is where there's an article out there by Kevin Van Hooser that's super helpful, where it is a mixed endeavor, mm-hmm. where, where certain elements of counseling, it is materially sufficient, and certain elements, it is formally sufficient. Let me break down what I mean by that. When it comes to etiology, and by etiology, that's just the word for because. Edi is the Greek for because. The, the becauseology, why things happen, it is mixed. It is correct in that really it's sin. Sin is the reason that all counseling problems exist. Now, that might be natural sin, that is, our bodies are fallen, and therefore our minds aren't producing the right neurotransmitters, or you know, our hormones are off balance, or something like that. It could be moral evil. We are choosing to do something that is wrong. It could be that we are not choosing, but someone has sinned against us, and therefore it is created suffering in us. But that sort of etiology, the becauseology that is sin, is the most foundational. But then there's also a sense in which counseling and medical technology can help you with becauseology as well. It can help you see, oh, well, there really is a brain deficiency here. There really is a neurotransmitter problem here. There really is something going on here. So etiology is mixed. Now, phenomenology also mixed. What do I mean by phenomenology? I mean the method that you see now that you can use inside the counseling room to get you to scriptural ends. Let me give you an example. Scripture can, because of its formal sufficiency, tell you that we should be good listeners, that we should be those who rush to listen to others as God listens to us, not because we are required to, but out of an act of love, because God's not required to listen to us He knows us better than we know ourselves. He only listens to us because he loves our voices and he loves us and he wants to hear us. That should form our hearts and character that we listen to others and especially our spouses because we want to out of an act of love. Mm. It is sufficient there formally to give you that structure. How is it in the 20th century or 21st century that a husband listens well to his wife? Scripture doesn't tell you that. And praise the Lord, it doesn't. Because how an ancient Near Eastern person probably listened to his wife well is going to be very different than how a modern 21st century man listens to his wife well. It gives you flexibility there. And so you want to be able to listen to people who say, this is a good phenomenological way 
for a husband to be a good listener in such a way that the wife receives loving care. Mm. Awesome. Let me use that. Where scripture is both materially and formally sufficient, it is both, is telos. What is the aim that I'm going for in counseling? Is it personal satisfaction? No. It's Christ-likeness. It's to love him and appreciate him more and to love my neighbor more. That's always the end of the commands of God, and it's always the end of all of our counseling. And that we know that Scripture is the thing that really helps to form that, so we know it's sufficient there. So so it's a mixed domain sort of thing, etiology mixed, phenomenology mixed, teleology um, pure in its sufficiency. <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean that you have to take everything that counseling says is true, as Mark was talking about earlier. You have to take what a counseling methodology says is true and put it on the lens of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Again, if there's some sort of methodology that would say good listening means going out and having an affair with some other woman so that you can understand what it's like to know what other people needs are, which there's no there's no counseling that I know of that says that, right? I'm just making so something up. Yeah, yeah. But but if there were, if someone were like, this is affair counseling, mm. not how to get over an affair, but how to create them, right? <laughs> you, would, you would reject it out of hand, no matter how much science they could pile up mm. that would say, this makes you a better listener, a more compassionate husband. You would cast it out of hand because it violates the moral law of God. Mm-hmm. Right. So so even in its phenomenology, we don't just completely take it in. We need to set it under the lens of scripture. That's Calvin's metaphor, is that scripture's the the glasses or the lenses by which we view all things and make sure that, that what we're using is at least in accord with Scripture. I think that's a really helpful point, Josh, and I, uh, I think that actually exactly matches the last point of chapter 1. It simply says, "...the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture." And in this particular point of the confession, I think it's allowing for exactly what you're saying, Josh, that there are going to be these insights from our culture, from medical science, and from even a a secular counseling community. There will be insights that will be valuable that we can use. And now we must judge those against the Scripture, but if they stand up when held against the Scripture, then we may use them, I think mm-hmm. is what the confession is saying there. And mm-hmm. and I think it's consistent, of course, with what we've already said. Is That's the testimony of Scripture mm-hmm. as well. Amen. And it's beautiful because mm-hmm. we would be able to use them with having a proper understanding of what man's ultimate purpose is. I mean, going back again to the divines, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's if right. you know the telos, like we've been talking about, of, yep. of man in general, then you can use these things and actually maybe even have it better than the secular practitioners because, wow, you actually know what God's design was from the beginning. That's exactly, actually, this is exactly what I find Fleming. I must said Josh, but that's way <laughs> but too, that's convincing. Yeah. too convincing. Um, I, this is exactly what I find in my counseling so often is, is that when I'm able to put 
a secular tool in people's hands with a godly purpose. There you go. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Right. That it makes it that much more powerful and applicable that a secular person couldn't use. Yeah. Mm. They couldn't understand. It only becomes game theory. You listen well yeah. so that so that yeah. they may give you what you want. Right. Right. Wow. And we're just trying to feed each other's needs versus I can say, no, no, no. Your entire goal here is to know Christ, to be like him, which sometimes means a sacrificial servant. Mm. There, there are times mm. when you're going to listen and you're not going to get anything back. That's okay. That's just being like Jesus. Mm. And you're going to see him more and you're going to appreciate him more when you have to do that. Amen. Right? So good. And this is and what that actually, What that actually does is it takes the lenses, uh, which can so frequently be our own and our troubles of like, you know, woe is me and woe is my trouble. And that's not to say there's not legitimate trouble, legitimate sadness out there, but especially in the realm of interpersonal conflict, it, it takes the focus off of the other person and what they're doing to make me feel bad. Mm-hmm. And it puts it on Christ and reminds us of our obligations in those instances, regardless of what the payoff is right. uh, of what he requires of us. But it also reminds us of his incredible blessing to us in the midst of what he's requiring of us. Mm-hmm. And he actually wants what's good for us in that situation. He wants us to thrive. He wants us to know the sufficiency of his grace for us in mm-hmm. that moment mm-hmm. so that we can actually grow in holiness. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one of my favorite studies in, in college, because I was a math major, was was in variable calculus, multidimensional calculus, because basically it was the field where you could cut things up and you could measure as things happened in systems of mathematical equations, how that system would change and what it would look like and what the expected outcome would be. Mm. And if I understand the way that we're talking about sufficiency is, is, is sufficiency tells us what the outcome of the equation is. But sufficiency, if we take this view that we've talked about today, it also allows us to look at tools in the world around us that really cut up and, and measure what human functioning is supposed to look like so that we can know what parts equal the sum of the whole that we're supposed to get to. And it's actually a blessing to us when we can measure it because we know how we're, what are we missing in our equation to actually help us get to the final goal. Uh, I know that's a nerdy math analogy. I was going to say, your, your great learning has caused your madness there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we can top multi-dimensional calculus. I, I think that's pretty much the trump card. Sorry, multivariable. That, that's the trump card that says the podcast is time to come to a close. Any final thoughts from any of you gentlemen? No, thank you. I enjoyed this conversation. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, appreciated your insights, Josh. Uh, and Josh. And Josh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Man, I appreciate all you guys, and I'm, I'm thankful for the ability just to talk these things through. Mm-hmm. So. Right. And again, it, it, I think it's just we appreciate the people on both sides here, those who take a wider view of sufficiency and Absolutely. them calling us back to Scripture and making sure that that's where we start and end. And we appreciate mm-hmm. the other side that has a little bit of a narrow view and that it can look at various tools that can help us mm-hmm. in our ability to try and help people to live in accord with what Scripture would say. So we want to look at both sides, appreciate their strengths, while also maybe being able to market uh, uh, a bit of a middle ground here. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, that will wrap up, I think, our discussion of the first chapter of the Westminster Confession when we get back together next time. We'll move on to the second That's chapter. Right. Yeah, we'll be heading in. Mm. Chapter two. We'll get into... Attributes of yeah, God? God we're about, yeah. That's right. That's Attributes right. of God. This, just, just a little bit of a peek. This chapter is the cha- chapter that God really used in my life for my conversion. For Josh, Josh, and Mark, I'm another Josh. We'll see you next time. God bless.